0: that music means your next hour is going to be about connection welcome to this show is all about you a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing
1: the things we all have in common when you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Welcome, welcome, welcome once again, everyone, to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thanks for taking the next hour to spend with me, and let's talk about some things that uh, might sound familiar, but maybe we'll do them in a little bit of a different way, all with the idea of kind of getting under the surface of things and, and really getting to the points that connect all of us. And uh, so really happy to have you here. You can find out more about me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. There's original writings, episodes of this show, some other things uh info about the novel I'm pitching, all of that there. You can also find more about me, more about find out more about me. I think I got that right. Uh <laughs> my social media feeds, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, just look me up, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and I would love to chat with you. Uh, Thanks also right here at the outset to this show's generous sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, a nonprofit that is based down the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities to underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers. And they do so in such a fantastic integrated fashion that uh, empowers the students and their families Uh, to not only improve their own lives, but also that of their communities and that, of course, of the larger industries uh, and the world at large. And that's how big they aim. And I I love that about them. And you can find out more about how they do that and all the different things they do at their website, airside.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org. And you'll hear more about them during the show breaks. So welcome back, everyone, to another episode. And if you've been following for the last uh, few weeks, and if you haven't, you can get this uh, show wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been following the last few weeks, we've been talking about the midterm elections that just passed last week. And lo and behold, we were surprised, <laughs> generally speaking. Uh, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about what's come out of that uh, for me, what I've seen in all of that, what I think maybe some larger perspective points are for us moving forward. Um, and hopefully it's it's something that you'll find helpful. You know, so Uh, And it had it has a big ripple effect what happened last week, uh, not just in this country, but throughout the world, as you'll see when we kick into how we always start the show with a look at last week's news in what in the world is going on. Well, we've got winter arriving, which generally slows things down. Um, Both sides are running short of weapons at the moment, and both sides will be battle-weary. From a Russian perspective, their military is spent at the moment. They're also running short of uh, weapons. They're going to Iran to try and get drones and uh, cruise missiles. He's pretty close to achieving his objectives here, and he's got a bit of an uprising back domestically. So actually, it's almost certain Putin's getting close to the point where he would be prepared to negotiate. From a Ukrainian perspective, though, their tails are up. Their morale is high. I think it's a little bit of an optimistic assessment that Putin is going to uh, be willing to negotiate. But who knows? Um, Surprising things happen all the time, as we we just found out last week. So certainly we could be hopeful about that. But what is going on in Ukraine is what has been approaching for a while. Uh, Both sides consolidating their gains as winter sets in. Winter in that part of the world is extraordinarily bleak and cold and difficult. And so Russia has been trying to make things as difficult as possible for Ukrainians by blowing up infrastructure, particularly power plants, that type of thing. Hopefully to give them a miserable winter from his point of view. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian military continues to push uh, Russian forces out of places they've occupied, most significantly the city of Kherson, the regional capital in the southeast of the country. That was really the land bridge between Russian forces and Crimea, and Russia withdrew from there and did an organized withdrawal and is redistributing the thirty thousand troops that were there up to the northeast into the Donbass where their primary objectives are. And it looks like with the uh, with the Dnipro River right in the middle between those two forces, that they're really settling down for the winter. So it is a major Ukrainian victory to retake that city, and the and the pictures of the jubilation, the video of that. Uh, are really inspiring. It also is a recognition by someone in Russia that they need to consolidate what they're doing and uh, really settle in for the winter. Does that mean that Putin will negotiate? Who knows? Uh, It's really open-ended. There are weapon shortages and troop exhaustion on both sides, so winter will be a time uh, for those to be shored up. And in the meantime, the political and economic warfare will probably pick up as well, uh, particularly energy prices in the EU tied directly to Russia's control over, of, over European energy, continued to rise, and that could put political pressure on European countries uh, to reduce uh, or to crack, uh, if you will, the uh, unified front they have against Russia. I do not think that will happen. Uh, Ru- the EU has been working for months now to make sure they have enough supplies for the winter, and they do. However, political turmoil does not always uh, hinge on reality, <laughs> as we all know. So we'll find out more about there. And, of course, Uh, The U.S. midterm elections, the results there have also been significant because with Democrats holding on to the Senate, it will be much easier for Ukraine to continue to get funding from the United States to fight the war against Russia for the next two years. So one of the big winners, I have to say, in the U.S. midterm elections that nobody seems to be talking about is Vladimir Zelensky. Another side effect of the midterm elections we will see with our update on Iran.
0: Well, Heather, capital punishment is now a way that the government's stepping up its crackdown on demonstrators. And in this case, the court said the accused, who is unnamed, set a government building on fire and was sentenced for disturbing public order and colluding to commit a crime against national security. And while this is the first known death sentence tied to these protests, the UN estimates that the death toll over the past two months has risen to more than 300 people, including dozens of children. Iran also has one of the highest rates of execution in the world, which rose dramatically last year by 25%. Amnesty International estimates more than 300 people were executed last year.
1: Executing your best and brightest for protesting against you is not a good strategy. And unfortunately, it's one that Iran can't seem to escape. As the protests against the government by majority young people, uh, but also with coalitions of working class uh, citizens of all ages, as they continue and now moving into their third month, which means they have staying power. uh, As that happens, the Iranian government is finding itself increasingly isolated and under more and more pressure than it was already facing uh, just a few months ago. And that is going to have consequences at some point. And it sure seems like Iranians who are protesting this Recognize that, that the longer they go, despite the crackdowns, despite death sentences, despite their their own security forces firing on them, the longer they can go, the bigger the chance of success. And it is quite the convergence of challenges for Iran that this is highlighting. So this what they're doing to their own people is only fueling the protests and making them more widespread and more supported. They're also trying to help Russia with drones, uh, which is earning them um, antipathy from most of the rest of the world and bringing about more pressure. The crushing economic sanctions that have been put on them by a number of countries, most significantly the United States, continue to worsen economic conditions in that country. A country that still wants a nuclear deal with the rest of the world to get those sanctions removed. And they can't saber rattle too much uh, if they want to be able to hold on to that. And the midterm elections, yet again, because the Senate is staying in Democrat hands, it's going to allow the foreign policy power of the Senate, which is second only to that of the president, going to allow that to continue to be brought to bear on Iran for its human rights violations here. So, again, midterms having a larger effect. And speaking of the midterms, let's get to it. I think common sense conservatives that focused on talking about issues people cared about, like the economy and crime and education, they did win but people who tried to relitigate the 2020 election and focused on conspiracy theories and uh, you know, talked about things the voters didn't care about. They were almost universally rejected. And I think it's, it's basically the third election in a row that Donald Trump has cost us uh, the race. And it's like you know, three strikes, you're out. That is outgoing Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, one of the few longstanding uh, Republican critics of former President Donald Trump. Speaking uh, over the weekend about what he saw as the reasons why the GOP's effort to uh, rout the Democrats in the midterm elections didn't get anywhere close to that. The so called red wave uh, did not materialize, despite almost everyone believing it was really going to happen Democrats, Republicans, uh, across the media spectrum. And certainly, uh, Hogan's point is being picked up in a lot of different quarters as of today. In fact, a, a poll just came out today from, from Yahoo that uh, the majority of Republicans polled right in the days after the, uh, after the election now prefer Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, to be the, political, the presidential nominee in 2024 over Donald Trump. That is significant by itself and that that's the first time that has happened since Trump exploded onto the political scene back in 2015-2016 uh, leading up to his surprise election that year. However, a number of different voices are now saying that Trump needs to step away from such a prominent role in the party that perhaps uh, tomorrow, uh, as of this recording, he should not announce his uh, candidacy for the 2024 uh, presidential election. Who knows how that will turn out? But nevertheless, Trump's biggest backed uh, candidates in the big nationally prominent races in Pennsylvania, in particular, uh, but also here in Washington State, looks like increasingly in Arizona uh, and elsewhere, all failed uh, to win their seats, and so that there's a direct tie-in to that. And we're going to talk today on the show about where all this came from and what it might mean. But Hogan was correct: the candidates who did very well, whether they were Republican or Democrat, who were in uh, swing ca- swing states or swing districts, depending what they were running for who talked about the things that were really affecting those districts did well. The ones who were kowtowing to Trump's line about the 2020 election, about continued fraud, all these things that have been verified to be untrue for several years now, none of them did nearly as well, and they almost all lost when they were up against candidates who were focusing on the everyday concerns of Americans. And the fact that that surprises us Generally speaking, that those people did well shows the level of political disconnect that has occurred in this country, the drift away from what uh, political norms have been uh, for six years. So anyway, that's the news, and so we're going to talk a little bit uh about really what I think all of that means. what the first thing somebody asked me when when all this happened, they asked me if I was surprised, well, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's it's something when when the prevailing attitudes among many, particularly people who do these types of things for a living, polling and all that type of stuff, seem to be indicating that that things are going to go a certain way, it's hard not to get caught up in this idea that, okay, that is what's going to happen. The historian in me, though, who focuses on context, this moment in the context of larger past moments, I tends to be uh, a little more measured when these things are coming along. There have been enough surprises, enough times, and enough places in elections to show that whatever we expect in a given one may not always go that way. And what's remarkable to me is that we now have four elections in a row where everybody's been surprised, <laughs> right? In 2016, the surprise was that Trump was elected. In 2018, the surprise was the level of the bloodbath suffered by the Republican Party in losing the House and the Senate uh, to to the Democrats. in 2018. In 2020, the surprise the surprise there was Biden winning, and yes, I got my facts mixed up. The bloodbath in 2018 really weakened Trump in the House. The House moved over to the Democrats. And then in 2020, not only did Trump lose reelection, but the Senate flipped to the Democrats. And now here, what's expected to be a red wave to have been a, what was supposed to have been a referendum on Joe Biden's presidency turned out to be evenly, if not more so, a referendum on Trump's continued presence and influence across the political electorate. So all of that to say, when are we going to cease being surprised when we're surprised? That does not mean that polling is not important. That does not mean any of that because a lot of people are saying, well, we just need to not listen to polls. No, I think the thing is just about anybody now can put out questionnaires and say that they're a polling station. So some are better than others, right? My personal uh, one that I like the most is the Siena University New York Times series of polls. Those I think are the most in-depth, but there's other really good ones as well. Those ones, and interestingly enough, the New York Times poll with Siena was anticipating something much closer to what actually happened. That doesn't mean that somehow they were able to read the tea leaves necessarily better than anybody else. But it is worth noting that the noise from the political right, the enthusiasm about the idea of there being a red wave, just enough people putting that out there in enough places and enough times with loud enough voice seemed to have this effect where more and more people began to believe, maybe subconsciously, that if this many people were saying it, it must be true. And the idea, of course, from the political right was, if you can put that out there, you might be able to depress voting among people who would vote against that. So was that strategic? Absolutely, I think it was. Uh, And certainly, if it wasn't, it was something that um, ended up happening anyway. And a number of people were influenced by that. And I saw it among many people that I know who are some of the most savvy uh, and some of the most informed people I know, who were caught up in this as well. So it can happen to any of us. So was I surprised? Yes, I was, and I also chuckled at the same time, asking myself, "Why am I surprised that we're surprised?" (laughs) Because the last four cycles have have shown this. So, what does this mean going forward? Well, that's a really, really good question. I spent the last two episodes talking about the importance of staying right where we are of trying to that getting ahead of things or making what's going to happen now be the arbiter of everything that's what's going to happen later is a mistake and is usually a root of a lot of anxiety unnecessary anxiety and stress that we can inflict upon ourselves and when we do that we can be a part of the larger problem of disconnecting from one another lashing out at one another taking on um, belief systems that are, you know, around complex ideas, we look for simplistic solutions, all of that can tie back to that. And so I wanna caution again on this, that it's important to stay right here at this point. And when we come back after our first break, I'm gonna use an analogy that hopefully will be helpful uh, as how we're gonna frame this and talk a little bit more about what I think we can make of these midterm elections and what it means for us going forward. So come on back on this episode of this show is all about you.
0: Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's AIRSCI.org or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you kind of doing some reflecting on the midterm elections uh, that uh, we talked about the last few weeks and the stress level of last week of what was uh, anticipated or feared or whatever has now transitioned into the surprise of what actually happened. And because of that, all of us scrambling to figure out what it all means. And it's a reminder yet again that uh, staying in the moment and recognizing the power of it right now is, is usually the best thing. And not assuming that what happens right now is going to be the uh, determining factor for everything that follows, uh, I think is a really really important uh, thing to get across here. So before the break, I promised you a uh <laughs> an analogy <laughs> that I think uh, will be able to explain this a little bit and uh if I, if there's going to be a theme to this episode, it's the idea that predictions are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand why everybody does them. And and yes, it's a little tongue in cheek. We all make predictions on various things. Uh, usually those can connect back to some element of our emotional psychology, particularly around things like this. Uh, even though it's oftentimes an exercise in, in intellect, oftentimes uh, those things, predictions are driven by emotion and a lot of other factors that maybe we can or cannot see. And being hopeful, I think, is part of it, but also wanting to protect ourselves from disappointment can also be uh, a part of of predictors as well. And it doesn't matter really what we're talking about. But the example I want to choose from this is is something that I think actually matches up well with where politically we've been for almost a decade now. And uh, predictions are really big in televised sports, in particular National Football League. I've noticed that more than in any other sport in the United States. and i and I think this probably happens in in global. Soccer, football uh, as well, but it's really pronounced in the NFL where on all the pregame shows, whether we're talking on television or on the radio, they do all the analysis, they do all the assessment, they do all that. And then they ask everybody who's on the show for their prediction for the game and they make a big show out of it and they keep track of it over the course of the season. And and then, of course, when the game is played out and somebody was right, somebody was wrong, the people who are right get celebrated, the people who are wrong. Get criticized or made fun of or poked fun at usually, uh, and it's seen as this really important thing to do. <clears throat> Something else where another place where that happens is related in fantasy football, a huge uh, a huge industry in and of itself now. Where uh, for those of you who don't know what fantasy football is, it's where uh, friends pull together a team and you choose players on various different teams and you put them into sort of your own mock roster and you play them against one another and every player gets points for catches, for runs, for touchdowns, for sacks, you know, that type of thing. And you play against each other and if you have a, a league of 10 players, you all play each other several times and it's for bragging rights. And essentially what you're doing is you're selecting players that you are predicting are going to do well in this type of contest, make the most amount of points every week or over the course of a season. And you put them in play and then computers take over the rest. The games start, you're watching all the games going on, you're wondering at the same time, I wonder how this player on my team is doing or that player on their team is doing. And it adds another set of elements to that. And of course, what comes out of that too, you have some players that maybe you sat on your bench who did really great that day and a player you put on your roster didn't do great or got injured and didn't play for you know most of the game or whatever the case may be. And when that happens... And I happen to know this because I'm in a fantasy football league. When that happens, all the shoulds coming out. Oh, I should have started this person. Oh, I should have done that uh, for this person. All of these things get lined up. And again, predictions. And what's funny about both of those, both the pregame show predictions of who's going to win in fantasy football, is once the games start, all those predictions mean nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Because... The game hadn't started before that. The moment had not arrived where those games were going to be played. And so somehow the people who guess better and win their fantasy football league or choose the team that wins uh, most often on those pregame shows are somehow seen as more experts on something or more skilled in something than those who lose when it is really all chance. Can it be informed chance? Study the teams and say, yes, I really think because of these, these, these reasons, this team will beat that one. Or this player on this fantasy team will do better than that one. Sure. But man, as we just saw in the midterms with all those predictions and all the educated guesses and all the studies and all those things. Reality, particularly when it is determined by other people. In the political sense, voters in the sports sense, the players actually playing the game can bring about results that are very, very different. And whether that our side, whether we're talking politics or in sports wins or loses, it doesn't mean that we did something really right by choosing the right team that won or that we did something really poorly by backing the side that lost. It doesn't necessarily mean that in the case of politics, The big mitigating factor, of course, is that we're talking about millions of people voting. Each one of them bringing a whole series of different beliefs, different ideas, different perspectives to the table. The idea is to get an aggregate sense of where the larger voting population, which is only a segment of the, the actual population, where they are in terms of what they think is most important and where the country needs to go. And so in that sense, it's much more dynamic and much more open to people getting it wrong than, e- than just choosing teams in who's going to win in an NFL game or in a fantasy football matchup. And yet, we tend to treat politics like those pregame shows where everybody's picking a side. <laughs> where is this going to go? How do you think this is going to go? And part of that is because that's where the news cycle has gone, right? Uh, <laughs> that that uh, hot takes are the big thing now. If you're going to make a name for yourself, if you're going to continue to be brought on the news shows, you have this pressure to be right more often than not. Because if you aren't correct in your, your prognostications for long enough, people are going to stop asking you to come on to give your prognostications. And so there's a momentum, there's a the pressure that is built up among those who, need to, who, make, who do that for a living, talking heads in politics. It occurred to me, I was thinking back, on when did the discussions about the midterm elections really begin in earnest? And so I spent some time going back online into various news archives, and it was over a year ago. It was in October of last year, where really the, the noise about the elections was really starting to pick up because then people were talking about who was going to be in the primaries in 2022, who was going to do what. And Kevin McCarthy, who might become the next Speaker of the House if the Republicans eke out uh, a majority, said a year ago that he fully expected the Republicans to pick up 60 seats in this election in the House. They'll be lucky to pick up six. It'll be enough to flip the chamber in their direction, but it will be a razor-thin margin, which, as Eric and I were talking about before the show, is going to guarantee a lot of things like Gridlock, the most important thing, is a lot of work that needs to get done won't get done. And probably, sadly, a lot of unnecessary investigations uh, as revenge for the necessary political investigations into things like January 6th and these claims of election fraud and uh, impeachable offenses committed by uh, then-President Donald Trump. But the predictions were 60 seats. Not happening. Just about seven months ago, there were predictions during the summer before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade that the Senate was going to flip by about four or five seats. Well, that didn't happen either. And as it might turn out, depending how things go in the runoff in Georgia next month, the Democrats might actually pick up a seat uh, in the Senate. So that's a lot of time. Over the course of a year, almost 13 months now, how many hours were spent? on news channels of which there are so many now, some more worthwhile than others. How many pages of text written? How many hours of argumentation between people at the pub over the dinner table? How many hours were spent talking about predictions that turned out not to be accurate, that turned out to be perhaps wasted space, wasted air, Wasted energy. To me, that's what's so interesting about what's happening in in the aftermath of last week's elections. Is the simplest thing blew all that out of the water. A year's worth of rhetoric. Blew all that out. And that was just simply people going and voting. The very act of it. And certainly people are always with polls or trying to get ahead of things like what are people going to vote about, blah, 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 blah. But we're seeing enough now to know that particularly on the political right, it's, it can be really, really easy to over-index, as they say, to over-index the loudest voices on the right. And the loudest voices on the right are ones that are vocally and openly supportive of former President Trump and will continue to be most likely no matter what happens. That side, it's easy to over-index because anybody who's not quite that far to the right isn't necessarily always willing to tell pollsters what they really think that they might be leaning towards Trump or leaning towards the right. There's more reluctance among those who are leaning right, to be honest with pollsters, than those who are leaning left. And that has been documented in the last four elections in the aftermath of it. And when exit polls are conducted, people who walk out of the polling centers and are willing to be interviewed uh, by exit pollers, when they start talking about what really matters to them, everybody's surprised. <laughs> and in this election, everybody thought it was going to be about inflation, because going back to the Clinton administration, the the old adage is "It's the economy, stupid." Well, no, inflation was important, but other factors were just as important. Certainly, abortion, uh, and the 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 fallout from the Supreme Court decision during the summer turned out to be a major motivator of. Bringing people to the polls, particularly younger Americans uh, and women voters uh, across the spectrum. And in a number of states, there were significant portions of women who actually leaned to the political right who helped vote down measures in five red states to try to codify abortion bans into their state constitutions. Those all failed. And it required a number of people who identify as Republican to have joined the ranks of those who do not to shoot that down. So that was clearly a factor. Another major factor, as Governor Hogan had been pointing out, which I think is true, a number of people believed that securing and safeguarding democracy mattered more than whatever the difficulties might be around inflation, um, war overseas, rising prices and everything, that there seemed to be a bigger issue at stake. And that's where I think Governor Hogan and those others on the right are correct. Trump inserting himself into these races and making himself so prominent reminds a lot of people out there, gives them the impression that all of this is under threat. And so the most important thing is to vote in that direction in whatever way they think they should. And it led to a lot of so-called split tickets around the country where people were voting with one party around one candidate for one office and then going the other way. Uh, you know, So voting for a Republican, for governor, for example, and then voting for a Democrat for Senate, on the other hand. And it cut both ways, right? We saw it quite a bit in Pennsylvania. There were a number of Republican voters who voted for John Fetterman for Senate uh, and not for Mehmet Oz because Oz was supported by Trump. And there were certainly a lot of Republicans in that same state who voted against Doug Mastriano for governor because Mastriano was extremely radical and uh, very, very pro-Trump. In Arizona, (laughs) the flip side, which still a a race that still isn't decided yet, Carrie Lake, another vocal, maybe the most vocal uh, pro-Trump gubernatorial candidate, hasn't quite lost yet. Looks like she's probably going to. However, there were a number of people who voted for the Democrat candidate for Senate, Mark Kelly, who won. And beat out Trump's back candidate, who still voted for her. (laughs) So, so split tickets can can cut both ways. But what's significant is a lot of people went into these elections, understanding the larger importance of them, and were splitting their tickets because the overarching concern is what does this mean for the safety and the health of democracy in the country. Now, the downside of that is you can get a lot of things evenly split, and when you get the House evenly split the Senate evenly split, it can make getting anything done really difficult. It makes bipartisan work all the more important, but all the more difficult to actually accomplish. Because all the different interested parties in both parties are all clamoring for their own pieces of everything and their own influence. And so deals have to be made, not just between Republicans and Democrats, but within the Republican and Democratic caucuses to get anywhere. And when you have the rhetoric so ratcheted up particularly on the right which i think the gop is trying to settle now but when you have all of that ratcheted up so highly it's going to make it really tough for president biden for example to step in and try and broker deals you know that are in the, the best interest of the country there are some who will say hey that's how it is if the govern if the the population is split then the government's going to reflect that and they have to do the best they could The problem is, is that we seem to have really short memories. As I pointed out, we seem to have forgotten. We've been surprised in the previous three elections with how they've gone. And so we're surprised now that we're surprised. But it's really easy to forget in two years, for example, if nothing gets done and there's still a whole lot of problems, that will a a Republican-dominated or Republican-run House be held accountable in the next election? Or will everybody fall for all the rhetoric again for the fifth time, right? Those are the big open questions, right? So while it's important to stay in the moment, it is also important to remember precedent and remember context from previous elections as to where these things go. And that's my larger point here is instead of treating politics like we have to be on one side or the other, we have to pick our team, right? Like the NFL pregame shows, we have to pick our team And they're going to play in this game that never ends, right? (laughs) Because effectively the political game never ends. Then we are missing the larger point of politics. We put at risk all the things that help a stable democracy remain so and continue to grow. And we run the risk of falling into the traps that overheated rhetoric can produce for us. And I think it's amazing that everyone is marveling at these candidates uh, who won unexpectedly in all these districts all over the country who did so just by saying, when I go to Washington, I'm going to make sure the roads get fixed. I'm going to make sure the schools get built and that uh, that that public safety is a priority and this is how I'm going to do it. And here are my credentials. And this is why I think this idea that I have is better than my opponent's idea. Oh, by the way, my opponent is not even talking about any of this. This level of surprise that we had that that worked (laughs) is both comforting and disturbing. (laughs) Disturbing in the sense of I think that's what politics is for in the first place. And maybe we've clearly we've forgotten that collectively. But also comforting in the sense of, oh, okay, people still care about that. Enough people cared about that to go and vote for it maybe splitting tickets if they thought that was important or voting for the first time because they thought that was important or voting out of a sense of urgency or fear for what would happen if they didn't. All of that coalesced together in a very, very complex mix to produce this result. And so unlike, just like in, I should say in NFL predictions predictions here don't mean a lot when the game, in this case voting, actually starts. And so it begs the question, why do we do this and what should we do instead? So let's talk about that when we come back from another break here on this show is all about you. See you in a
0: minute. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is All About You because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airside.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. <laughs> Don't Ask Me to Talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more. With a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating, tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Talking about why predictions are stupid, particularly in elections, uh, but also in sports, <laughs> honestly. Uh, and, uh, and what does that mean for us uh, going forward as we figure out what this midterm election means and, and what it'll look like going forward? As I mentioned before the break, predicting things can help us feel better. It can also help us feel worse. You know, so we can use it to, you know, to really buck ourselves up. We're going to win this. Or to protect ourselves from disappointment and crushing pain, if we lose, and it doesn't really work in sports. I know firsthand from my own experience in predicting of doing both, thinking I'm going to win, thinking I'm going to lose. Where I've been wrong so many times, either direction, that after a while I just gave up on the entire idea. And I really try not to fall to that in politics either. To really, I really try to focus on what it is that I think is really at issue. What is the best way to solve it and who are the representatives in my area where I happen to live who I think can best do that in a way that I think is befitting for not only for me but for everybody around me at least that's that's the ideal i try not to do i try to really focus on that rather than get too caught up in predictions because so often they turn out to be wrong and i think part of the problem that we've had for the last 6 plus years Uh, maybe even longer than that, is politics politics have become increasingly polarized around this idea of one team versus another, that you're on one side or you're on the other. And and that's certainly the way the rhetoric has been uh, for a while now. And yet voters just come in and seemingly muck up that whole framework for the last four elections and show how simplistic that is and the risks of focusing too much on it because then we're not able to understand effectively Where collectively as a country we happen to be in our sentiment, in our desires, in our needs, what we're focused on, what we're not. And so that's why I think history is really helpful. That does not mean that history is predictive. I don't think it is. I've said on this show before that uh, history isn't a crystal ball at all. It can be helpful maybe in in maybe giving an idea of what might not happen. But even that, it's not very good at. Um, Unprecedented things and surprises happen all the time. Uh, in history, and we see it happening all the time, and certainly um, unforeseen circumstances, the law of unintended consequences, can change things in an awful hurry, right Certainly, the political landscape changed really, really quickly just a couple of years ago and became superheated when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and That was something that wasn 't you know people wondered if she was going to retire, there were some questions about her health, but all of that really surprised everyone and changed everything in a way that nobody could really anticipate and everybody had to respond to or react to. So if it's going to happen, if, if unexpected things happen in the now, that means when we look back on them in history, they're unexpected then. So, you know, it's important to remember from history that we probably shouldn't be surprised by surprises in elections. And therefore maybe we need to temper ourselves a little bit on the whole prediction front. Uh, But also it's, it's not a crystal ball either. There's not necessarily a way to fully predict how something is going to go and in what way and what it's going to mean, and if that sounds uncomfortable, that's because it is <laughs> because that's the that's the unknown, right? There is an unknown, and there isn't anything we can do about that except just step into it, pay attention to it, and decide, like I talked about last week, what to do in with this time that we have, to what degree to participate in these things, certainly, in the last six months since for, as an example, since the the Dobbs decision that overturned uh, Roe versus Wade, a lot of people have gotten involved in the ground game, the so-called ground game in state capitals and county or well, among county councils and that type of thing in various states, particularly in so-called red states, by everyday people looking to prevent abortion from being banned in those states and their constitutions. Or flip side, to work really hard in the ground game to get abortion rights enshrined into state constitutions like happened in this election in Vermont and California and elsewhere. So that ground game is picking up. So participation in the larger political process that goes well beyond just voting is clearly a choice that a number of Americans have made and more will continue to make. And certainly people on the right will decide to do that. People on the left, people in the middle, more like myself, independents, will, will choose to do that in their own various ways or they won't. And so how does that all play out? We don't know yet. But no level of prognostication, no matter how, wh- how good it makes us feel or how attacked it makes us feel, is going to determine that one way or the other, either by who's saying it or how many people are saying it. So can this focus, focusing from this point of view, change things? Sure it can. But that requires, at first, individual efforts by each of us. And then understanding that there will be a collective effect of that, that we may or may not be able to predict. And we may not be able to see it until after an election is over and we can get better better sense of things. So like, for example, in this election cycle, 31% of people who voted in this election identified as independents, independent voters, not affiliated with the Democratic or Republican parties. I am one of those voters. I've been an independent my whole life. Uh, and the reason for that is because, first of all, I like keeping my options open. And second, I've seen enough from both parties over time to know that neither of them has a monopoly on having all the answers correct or being wrong all the time. Oftentimes it's the ebb and flow between the two and where I end up voting is going to go more towards historically those I think who are getting more of it right, more of the time on more of the things I care about than the other. So I have voted for Republicans in the past. I have voted for Democrats in the past. Lately, I've been voting for a lot more Democrats mainly because I'm one of those people that believes that safeguarding our democratic institutions and having responsible adults in those positions matters a lot. And when the Republican Party puts forward candidates who are neither of those things, I am not going to vote for them. (laughs) It's that simple. I do not subscribe to the idea that the worst Republican is better than the best Democrat or vice versa. And I have a hard time understanding that in anyone, frankly. But that is just not how I roll. So 31% of the electorate this time were independent voters. Those swing voters mattered. And they broke by a two-to-one margin for Democratic candidates in this election. That's a significant number. A similar number voted in 2016 in the election. And a majority of them, of swing voters, swung to elect President Trump in enough states. And so that was significant then. And so they are always a wild card every year. How many, what independents are going to show up and where are they going to vote and how are they going to vote? All of that matters together. Young people, as I mentioned, are voting in larger numbers. Split tickets still matter, as I mentioned, which is something that is important. And the demographics, political demographics are shifting in this country along with ethnic and religious demographics. Fewer and fewer people are ascribing to an organized religion in this country. More and more people in this country are non-white by identification, and there are larger constituencies growing around a number of different ways in which people identify themselves around gender, uh, just about anything. All of those are shifting, and political parties are going to have to adjust to them. So far, the loudest voices on the political right seem to be responding to that by attacking those demographics right? and trying to sideline them. And trying to sideline books that are written, you know, about them or can educate uh, students about them. I don't think, though, however, on the political left, there's a real clear strategy yet of how to really connect with those shifting demographics. And you see some of the effect of that in states like Florida, where more and more people, uh, more Latinx uh, uh, voters are voting Republican than ever before. That's also happening in Texas. And so there are. Open questions there that need to be addressed and need to be focused on more than sort of larger predictions. I think something we also saw in this is something that has also been played out in history before. Politics of grievance and resentment have a shelf life. They can draw for a while, they can motivate for a while, but at some point when they do not produce the larger results that they promise, they tend to fizzle out. Now, it's hard to know if that's going to happen in the case of former President Trump. Three strikes and you're out, what Larry, what Larry Hogan said, might very well stick to him. It might very well not. So it's hard to know. There are a number of people who might say, okay, the proof is there. Candidates endorsed by him are not going to win in general elections, so we need to go another direction. However, there's enough of the genie out of the bottle as far as that's concerned that there are a whole lot of disaffected people out there who are big supporters of the former president, who are drifting further and further to the political right, who saw what happened last week as yet more proof of what they see as a rigged system, a corrupt system, a deep state conspiracy that frankly is only going for many of them to deepen their convictions already and probably push them even further out to the extremes. It's why there's more concern now among national security experts about political violence in this country than there was before the election. And it was a it was a red alert level of uh, concern before the election. So there are a number of things that will still have to be determined here. Uh, So there are a number of factors that we now know in retrospect were important. Just like after a a football game plays out, you can take a look at what actually happened and say, here are the reasons why this team won and this team lost. And no matter how much we want to comfort ourselves or uh, protect ourselves by making predictions beforehand, they become null and void almost the second we make them when the actual event itself starts. And right now, for me, the key just seems to be remembering that going forward and using that as a something to reflect on and say what does this mean for how i should be aware and participate in larger civic culture until the next election do i need to be more involved in letter writing campaigns to my my representatives do i need to join organizations that are looking to push certain political agendas do i need to run for office myself These are all big questions. I'm not asking myself that, by the way. I'm not running. (laughs) No way. I I don't have the energy. I don't have the temperament. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, but nevertheless, these are all things that we have to ask ourselves. And if we choose to ask them, we can then actually get out of the whole prediction business altogether. We can focus on where we are, on where we want to go, on what issues matter the most to us, And have conversations with others about how best to connect with people over the importance of these issues. Because what happens when we predict too much and we make things simplistic, we can end up doing and saying things that we regret. So, for example, going back to the 2016 election, I bet if you were to ask Hillary Rodham Clinton, she might regret the whole deplorables comment that she made about various Republican voters. It's not the best way to appeal to others. And that's just one example. And certainly it ran over that whole experience and everything since has run over the reality that rural America, through almost in every single state, feels like Washington has been ignoring them for generations. And in some cases, Washington has. So if we're going to recognize that there could be underneath all the rhetoric, all the accusations, all that, are there legitimate issues for us to connect with and communicate with? How can we do that in such a way that it gets under all of that rhetoric and that grievance and that resentment? In some cases it's impossible, most likely. But if you succeed in 10 out of every hundred people and those people then go to vote, that turns entire elections <laughs> the way it's been. If we needed more proof of the importance of every single vote, the last four elections increasingly have shown that as participation in the last four has just gone up and up and up each time. There's more reason for us to believe in the power of single votes and political advocacy. And there's also a lot of reason to recognize we have a lot of work to do on the connecting front and on the actual work front to not just overpower our opponents, but actually to try to bring people over through the soundness of our arguments the connectedness with which we are approaching them and recognizing and that having them see that we recognize another human being on the other side of this. And I know I'm making it sound really simple, (laughs) but sometimes really simple things in concept can obviously be difficult to do in practice. But that is something I think for us to be thinking about. And that way we can then be hopeful when elections come around rather than fearful And we may or may not need to be surprised, may or may not need to make predictions about what will happen. And that way, whatever does happen, we are in a good space individually to respond effectively and take our next steps. All right. Well, would love to hear what you think of that and your own thoughts on all this. Again, you can reach out to me and see more about me at wordsbyjdk.com or you can find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And be happy to hear more about it then. And you can certainly pick up old uh, episodes at wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find this show wherever you find your podcasts. So please subscribe, please leave me a review. We'd really appreciate it. All right. So thank you for joining me and more thank yous. Uh, this show is all about you, Is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in studio producer, editor, and mix master. And happy birthday to you, Eric, yesterday, but nevertheless, happy birthday. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode. And all that went well for me this week goes to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Sanabria, Stacey Heller, Tony Vieira and Troy Hunter, Ashley Kniebel, Seth Moorman, Phil McCoy, Cesar and Martine Garcia, Ken Zick, Bruce Flomer, Katie Beck and Eric Crema. Special thanks this week to Ryan Coogler, the writer and director of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, for making a hell of a movie. Uh, Really good. uh, Really, really impactful. Thanks to everyone who voted. Democracy matters, and that was reaffirmed in a lot of ways by many of you this past week. Thanks for doing your part. Thanks also to all the J.R.R. Tolkien fans who did reach out to me over the past week and reassured me that I only made about a dozen or so small mistakes in some of the things that I talked about last week. Um, I don't really think those mattered all that much, but nevertheless, I really appreciate you listening, and I appreciate your attention to detail, and I do strive to get things right. And thank you, listeners. Uh, Certainly, I could not do this for you without you. And finally, as a way to send you off for the rest of the week, let's end, as we always do, with an original haiku. No need to predict when what is here and now can give us all we need. Chins up, everyone.